0: The reading is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry, but since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should fulfil his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. I wish that all men were as I am, but each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I am, but if they cannot control themselves they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this command, not I but the Lord, a wife must not separate from her husband. and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Verse 25 now. Now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for you to remain as you are. Are you married? Do not seek a divorce. Are you unmarried? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none, those who mourn as if they did not, those who are happy as if they were not, those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep, those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks he is acting improperly towards the virgin he is engaged to, and if she is getting on in years and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He is not sinning, they should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion but has control over his own will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then, he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does even better. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord." In my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Elizabeth. By um, extraordinary coincidence and clever planning, we arrive at this comprehensive uh, survey of uh, Christian marriage and singleness and sex on mother's day and uh, what a joy for us all to have uh, this chapter to deal with on such a momentous day uh, i actually i do think that whether you are male or female uh, whether you're single or married uh, here today there is uh, real meat in this chapter for us and i hope that um, even though it is uh, quite a complex and long and closely argued passage i hope that this will be hopeful to us all. But I do think we should pray that you hear God speaking and not me, because you really don't need my opinion on it. Father, we pray that we would hear this morning uh, the word of God uh, and the wisdom of God, and that you'd write that on our heads and hearts, because we know in this whole area, not just us as individuals, but our society has got into a real muddle, And we pray that you would help us to understand how you would help us to live uh, in these matters. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Let me just um, remind you that we're looking at 1 Corinthians uh, in our morning uh, series of sermons in the context of um, the marks of maturity, the marks of a Christian maturity. What is it that makes us as individuals and us as a church, mature in our Christian faith. And uh, I think that as we begin to look at chapter 7, actually what happened was as I started to write my sermon, I wrote down, I want to begin with a few cautionary words as we approach chapter 7. And I found that the cautionary words actually took half my sermon. Um, So I'm going to begin, the, the first half of my word is cautionary, and the second tries to draw out the teaching for different individual people, uh, individual situations from the chapter. So first, the cautionary words. I'm well aware that we all listen to a chapter like this from very different positions. Some of us are single happily, and some are single but a little unhappily. Some are married blissfully, and others are married, but they are experiencing what they describe in the counselling room as a hell on earth in that relationship some of course are widowed and others divorced and when we listen to material that Elizabeth has just read 1 Corinthians chapter 7 or we listen to a sermon we do not listen all in the same way we all listen with the perspective of where we are in our lives at this particular time we hear selectively it never ceases to amaze me that one can preach a 20-minute sermon with a main central theme, and we work quite hard at trying to get a central theme for our sermons. But at the door, someone will have heard a throwaway line which took a few seconds, and that is what God has written into their hearts and minds. And the preacher may barely say, n- barely know that they've said it. And this is particularly true when we're dealing with things that are so personal and so much part of our private lives as the things that are talked about in this chapter. So I know that the potential for causing misunderstanding and hurt is huge, and so I ask your forgiveness if in trying to get to the main thrust of the passage, I do say something which may personally hurt or offend you. I apologize for that. It's certainly not intended, but sometimes we can hear in that way. Rather foolishly, I think a fellow vicar uh, told me not so long ago that we do our pastoral work in the pulpit... Um, I know what he means, that as we teach the Bible, we try to apply God's love and standards to the part of people's lives that really matter. Uh, uh, Although I can't help feeling that it was also, on the part of this chap, a slight excuse never to visit anybody at all. Um, So uh, I'm not sure that I was convinced by it. But when it comes to marriage and sexuality, in my experience, rather more than sermons are required in pastoral work. And um, when people get into difficulties, there is a lot more to be said and listened to than can be said in a sermon. So if that's where you are, let me urge you not to bear that burden alone. We are a Christian family. We're here to help one another, to listen to one another, to help one another through difficult times. That might be through friends, might be through the pastoral team, might be through the clergy, it might be through the prayer ministry team. It might be just... um, as you uh, share with your fellowship group or whatever. But don't fight these battles alone. Uh, That's the whole point of being in a family, that we're here to support one another. So I'm aware of the dangers in that way. That's the first cautionary word. The second thing that we need to take very seriously indeed are the words of verse 31, which come smack in the middle of the chapter and are crucial for a right understanding of the chapter. Paul writes, For this world in its present form is passing away. This world in its present form is passing away. I really do think that one of the bad things that we've inherited from the 20th century, where existentialism of one sort or another dominated the educational process, is the loss of an eternal perspective. Maybe it's the experience of two world wars as well, with so much suffering. Uh, It caused people to think that uh, there really can't be much more than just this life. And people's faith was really undermined by those experiences in the 20th century. We've been brainwashed, I believe, into thinking that this life is all that there is. So if our marriage is going through a rocky patch, we conclude that life is too short to be miserable. It's best to trade in the old model for a new one. Uh, Never is this more clearly seen in the area of sex, I think. If the sex in marriage has lost a bit of its sparkle then people think that they're missing out on life. And uh, they turn on their television and people seem to be getting it a lot more often and a lot more fun uh, than they are in their marriage. So obviously try something else. Move on. Or if we're single and aspiring to a celibate lifestyle, as perhaps many are in our church family, uh, then uh, the attitude of the world around us sometimes seems to be that we are inevitably, if we're single, we're inevitably unfulfilled, handicapped even in some way, it seems, certainly to be pitied. Now, Paul would have been very unfamiliar with such a world and such a, an attitude uh, where our meaning is, is so wrapped, the meaning of our lives is so wrapped up in our sensual experiences. We, we are victims of that worldview and we need to free ourselves from it. Paul was influenced by two great things it seems to me. He was influenced first by his Jewish past. He knew that human beings unlike animals which are which are indeed ruled by their appetites and by the need for natural selection the survivors of the spittest. Darwin was of course right about animals But he realized that that human beings are not like animals in that sense. We are created in the image of God, the Imago Dei. And this God set his heart upon a particular people in whose midst he chose to dwell. In them, in the Jewish people, he was recreating the image which had been marred by sin. And Paul knows that human history The time lag, if you like, between the fall of man, paradise lost, and the redemption of man at the return of Christ, paradise regained, would not last forever. Paul has an eternal perspective based on his Jewish background. He knew that the great challenge for believers in this interim period, whether you are the ancient Israelites wandering in the desert or 21st century Christians like us, wandering in the confusion of post-existential secular materialism, the challenge is to image God now in all parts of our lives. And that includes, of course, living godly lives in our marriages, being godly with our sexuality. And as this chapter shows, he was under no illusions that it would be easy. It clearly was a major challenge for the church in Corinth, and you'd have to bury your head very deep in the sand to think that it isn't a major challenge in our society today. But not only was Paul driven and guided by his early life immersion in Judaism and his belief in a personal God and the personal challenge of God to live out God's image in society, Not only was he he guided by that, but of course he had been transformed by his encounter with the risen Christ. He simply knew, because he had seen Jesus, that this life in its present form will not last forever and is not all that there is. He knew because he had seen it on the Damascus Road. He had seen the risen Jesus and therefore knew that death was not the end. There was more to life than the sensual, physical experiences of this world. Actually, if you turn to chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, he explains that very clearly himself. Just look at chapter 15 and verse 12 uh, with me. I'm just going to read. Let Let Paul speak for himself on this subject. I'm just going to read verses 12 to 19 of chapter 15, page 1155. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses before God, for we've testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Now that's pretty clear what he thinks, that there's an eternal perspective here and we should not lose sight of it. Now, I myself tend to think that a lot of Paul's writings are influenced by his belief that the return of Christ was imminent, probably during the lifetime of the first Christians. There's a strong suggestion of that, uh, for instance, in verse 29, when he says that the time is short, the time is very short. There's a further clear suggestion of it, I think, in verse 25, when he says, talking about virgins, that, it's, that the time is short, so stay as you are because Christ is going to return at any moment. Of course, even if Christ does not return in our lifetime, time is short, because in the context of eternity, we all live for a very short time indeed. Even some of you here who have lived for a very long time, in the context of eternity, it's a very short time. And Paul is rightly concerned that as little of our earthly time be wasted as possible. And I think he was right. We should live as if Christ's return is imminent. Let's face it, he may return before the end of this sermon. Some are probably earnestly praying that he will. But perhaps, perhaps we're just at the beginning of time. Perhaps perhaps there's a long time to go. This week, um, Sean Atkins sent me a copy of a lecture given by Professor Russell Stannard who's the professor of physics at the Open University. And in the lecture, Stannard contests the view of Nobel Prize winner Stephen Weinberg, who dismissed human life as a more or less farcical outcome. I quote him, a more or less farcical outcome of a chain of accidents. Stannard argues very tightly that the vastness of the universe, he says that there are 100,000 million stars in our galaxy, the Milky Way, and at least 100,000 million other galaxies, he argues that that makes the miracle of life on this planet very hard to explain by chance. It's a very brilliant lecture. If you Google Stannard and the Royal Society, you can find it, and I'll try and make a link for it, uh, we'll, we'll have to do this because I don't know how to, uh, on our website so that you can pick up the lecture. Perhaps we are only at the beginning of time of exploring this vast universe in which God has placed us. Perhaps the return of Christ will not be for a 100 million years or more. Perhaps the victory of Christ over sin and death has got to be preached Throughout the universe, I mean, we simply do not know. But it made me realize that the chances of this life being all there is are extraordinarily small, it seems to me. Extraordinarily small. So to risk eternity by not living God's way here for a sexual thrill seems to be an extraordinary risk for human beings to take So Paul got a message from the church in Corinth asking him if it was good for the new Christians there to be married. And he gives very practical, I would say sensible advice. But behind that advice in every line is the assumption that your meaning and my meaning as a human being is connected to very much more than the mere human experiences of this life. Now, of course, the unbeliever thinks that that is mad. Actually, the modern unbeliever thinks that it might even be wicked to think that because they think that we Christians downplay the importance of this life because we're always, you know, pie in the sky when we die. But I think we should reject that charge as Christians. This life, we believe, is immensely precious It is, after all, the life shared by the Son of God himself. He became a human being. He shared our life on this planet. What we do in this life is so important that it shapes our eternity. Not least how we use our bodies and how we live in society, how we respond by faith to God and apply that faith in those areas, affects our eternity. But but this is not the only life that we will live. There is a greater experience of living to come. And exercising self-control, exercising self-denial even of our appetites in this life will actually not only make this life more livable, it is actually better for society if we live life God's way, but it will also enable us to lay hold of eternity So those are my cautionary words, and the second half is much shorter. What must we do? Well, are you single? Many of you are. Thank God for it. Yes, thank God for your singleness, says Paul. Verses 32 to 35, for instance, outline how you have the opportunity as single people to serve God that the married simply do not have because they have family cares to attend to. Those family cares may bring us great joy, but there's nobody here who's married who doesn't know exactly what Paul's talking about. And when actually Andrew Briggs read that at the 9.30 service this morning, where there were lots of young families, there was visible laughter, audible laughter in the church because they knew that the cares of married life were extremely onerous indeed. Now, I hear you say that uh, it's all very well for me uh, to say that uh, you should thank God for being single. After all, uh, I'm married, and so it's uh, easy for me to lay down that kind of law, isn't it? But I think it's important to remember that Paul, who wrote this in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul was not married, and I'm only passing on what he says, that singleness can be a great blessing. Does that mean that if you're single, you should rule marriage out? Clearly not. Verses 8 and 9 make that very clear. It's interesting, isn't it, that sex seems to be the driving influence uh, here. And we need to bear in mind, perhaps, when we see that Paul is dealing with something that is um, as personal as sex, that uh, he was living in Corinth, where the church was surrounded by the rampant uh, immorality of society. All around them. In fact, in response to the rampant immorality of Corinth, some Greeks, some pagan Greeks, uh, had rejected sex and marriage altogether in a a kind of um, ascetic, ascetic lifestyle, a self denying lifestyle. And these people were quite a striking example in Corinth of an alternative to a sexually licentious life. And the immature Christians, the young Christians in Corinth, you could see who were buying into a Judeo-Christian ethic, buying into a higher view of sexuality and of their humanity than they had previously had, uh, they were wondering if that was the correct thing to do. Should we live like these uh, ascetic uh, Corinthian Christians, self-denying Corinthian pagans? Should we live like that? And... uh, Paul is quite clear, it seems to me, quite clear in this chapter in a very practical, sensible way that God has given lifelong heterosexual marriage as the appropriate place for sexual intercourse. That seems to me just to flow through the whole passage, that God longs for his people to exercise their sexuality in a heterosexual context in a lifelong faithful relationship together. And as a church I believe it's really important even in the midst of loving and caring pastoral work for those who are struggling with the, all sorts of ways are struggling to work this out we must not tire of proclaiming from pulpit and by lifestyle that that is what god believes to be the best way we must not tire of that however countercultural it sounds however politically incorrect it may be so single single folk Rejoice in the opportunities of your singleness and recognize that God may have a life partner for you still. That seems to me the message of the chapter. Are you happily married here this morning? Well, thank God for it. And be kind and loving to one another. Verses 2 to 7, encourage a fulfilled sexual relationship within marriage. We are to treasure our marriage. We are to work at our marriages. If Paul had known about it, he would be saying to us, if you're in St. Andrews in North Oxford in the year 2009 and haven't done it already, go on the marriage course that starts in April. That's actually in the original Greek text, but it's just not there any longer. The marriage course is not just for people whose marriages are in a state of complete collapse and disaster. It's for I've been on it and we're doing okay generally. And uh, it's great to go on it. So let me encourage you to do the marriage course if you haven't done it already. He goes on to say that that as we treasure our marriage and work at it, we need to recognize that the the, the Christians in Corinth who seek to be mature in Christ are not at liberty to walk out on their marriages. Verses Verses 10 and 11 make that very clear. As Christians, we are in our marriages for life we should not even contemplate the possibility of those marriages ending. Incidentally, it seems to me that Paul's strictures against the remarriage of divorcees are limited to this situation. A Christian who initiates a divorce is not at liberty to remarry, at least while the previous partner is alive and single, if the, pers- if the Christian initiates the divorce does not, it seems to me, preclude the possibility of someone who has been divorced, who has been deserted, who is the victim of a partner who has initiated the separation. It does not seem to me to eliminate the possibility of remarriage for that person. Or, for that matter, the person who has, convert, who has been converted to Christ since a, a divorce has occurred. That's uh, how I believe uh, we should uh, understand verse 11. And I think um, it's... Pretty clear that that is what Paul's sensible, um, forgiving, down to earth practical advice is. Although, of course, Christians over the years have taken different views on that matter. A mark of a mature Christian is that you work through a rocky period in your marriage and you emerge stronger at the end. And lest you think it's impossible, I see nowhere in this chapter, nowhere is a suggestion from Paul that it might be easy to do that. Of course it's difficult, but that's what Paul challenges us to do. God has, so to speak, set the bar for mature believers at quite a high standard. And we may struggle like high jumpers to clear that bar, but that does not mean that we should lower the bar and settle for something different. As preachers and teachers, as Christian community let us set before society a high standard of behavior in this area. Even if we struggle to achieve it ourselves, let's still set before uh, society and set for ourselves this high standard. Okay, but what if you're unhappily married? What if your spouse wants out of the marriage? It's clear that the believer cannot opt out. Okay? So if one partner in a marriage wants out... They are acting like an unbeliever, even if at the time they still say they're a believer. They are acting, verses 12 to 16 uh, seem to imply, they are acting like an unbeliever. Now, of course, a lot of people who are going through, and you may yourself be going through a difficulty, you may have been through a difficulty in the past, you may know well people in your families or yourselves who are going through a difficult time at the moment in their marriages and you know that it's never just as simple as that. One person wanting out and the other person... One, one person being guilty, the other person being innocent. You know it's never like that. It takes two to tango every time. We know that. And I've never known a breakup that is either uh, simple or painless. But I think that what Paul is saying to the Corinthian church, and I think, therefore, as the Holy Spirit guided him, and there's this lovely honesty in the chapter about sometimes when he says, I think I've got the Lord's will, but I'm not absolutely sure... Uh, It's very, very honest of him. I think that he's saying that it is really important for us as a Christian community to have moral parameters. By far the best thing is for all marriages to survive. That is the best thing. But, says Paul, if an unbeliever and therefore someone acting as though they are an unbeliever wants out of a marriage, the Christian should not prevent them from going. They shouldn't initiate the breakup, but if the unbeliever or the one acting like an unbeliever wants out, then don't stop them going. Better to stay in, for who knows, and this is, I think, the the thrust of what he writes about in verses um, 12 onwards, much better to stay in, and there are numerous marriages, some of them are sitting in church this morning, who know that this is true, that if you stick at it and get through a rocky period, blessing is transferred not just to the one who's been acting like an unbeliever, but also crucially to the children of the marriage as well. There is a blessing that trickles down from, from living God, living life by the standards that God has set us. There is blessing that comes through that. There really is. And many of you here will testify to that. Finally, what, as uh, may have happened to quite a few of you here, what if your spouse has died? What if you've uh, had a faithful and long marriage to somebody and that person has died? Or perhaps what was more likely in Corinth, because life expectancy was so much shorter, uh, they had within the church fellowship quite young widows and widowers, What happens then? What about the person who has been widowed, who's left alone? Well, Paul has very sensible and practical good news for such people, perhaps especially for those younger, but by no means exclusively so, that, of course, such people can marry again. Of course they can. He says, you may marry again. Of course you may marry again. But, of course, be careful as a Christian that you marry someone who is a fellow believer. Your choice is limited only by that. A very encouraging and sensible word and one that some of you have enjoyed, of course, as God has blessed your lives. Some people think that this chapter of Paul is so set in the first century situation, the situation in Corinth, that it is not much help to us at all. It's very easy sometimes for people to look at the context of Paul's teaching and say, well, he didn't know what life was really like for us in the 21st century. It was so different in Corinth in the first How can we really take him seriously? That's not at all what I think. I believe that this chapter, when we think it through, when we analyze it, when we discuss it in our fellowship group, I believe that we will find that it is filled with some of the most spirit filled common sense that Paul ever wrote. And that we need a society to to rediscover these biblical values and uh, the biblical love and understanding that undergirds Paul's teaching in the passage. We need, I believe, to escape from the pernicious influence of the idolatry of sex, which barrages us today in every advert, every soap opera, every film. If you're not getting it, you're missing out on life. That's what society tells you the whole time. Paul says that's not true. Real relationships are much, much more important than that. Uh, David Bender Samuel came up to me, and I think I can remember this right. He said that, um, well, I'm not sure I can get it right. I think uh, uh, I've forgotten it. He said he he made the point that if we think that uh, that, 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 that the most important thing in marriage is sex, then we completely miss out on really the greatness and joy of a lifelong relationship. And there may be times when we just uh, need to remember that uh, as we go through our married lives to escape the idolatry of sex which barrages us us today. Paul calls for a standard uh, and a high standard that if we aspire to and go for, will help us to grow as Christians and to mature in our faith. May that be true of us as a community and as individuals. By God's grace. Amen.